0: 90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science.
1: Hey, Shannon, how are you?
0: Uh, I'm assuming I'm in a coma right now, a food coma.
1: Yeah, a a (laughs) tryptophan-induced sleep.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm assuming, or at least hoping for.
1: Yeah, so we're obviously recording this one a little bit early since we're going to be celebrating Thanksgiving this week.
0: Yay! Um, yeah, it. I thought you know we should rerun something. No one's going to be at work, but I figured actually, or you figured, a lot of people are not in North America that listen to our podcast. So you're correct.
1: It, it's true, and there will be lots of folks driving or catching up on this after. After Thanksgiving. Uh, so I true. wanted to do a uh, a fresh episode, especially since we missed one a couple weeks ago mm-hmm. while we were both traveling. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what more could we want to possibly talk about than some a word that induces fear in the heart <laughs> of structural geology students?
0: Uh, uh, <laughs> um, igneous rocks? Oh, wait, no. <laughs>
1: no, I said geology. Uh, oh, yeah. No, <laughs> Yeah,
0: you're right. You're right. <laughs> uh, yeah. So stereo nets, yay. <laughs> yeah.
1: So you're not terribly excited about this okay, topic. Okay. So can tell. like,
0: I am because I use stereo nets, but not like everyone else uses stereo nets. Um, you know. But we'll get to that. I'm real excited to see you describe this on the radio. To listen to you describe this on the radio. Um, and I'm just going to sit back and yeah, (laughs) yeah. Um, these are real important, right? Although I can tell throughout the notes, all your snotty, just do the math and just use your computer. You know what, John, sometimes doing stuff with tracing paper helps.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So we'll talk about some of the, how you do this, but I, I remember as a structural geology student. When they're saying, okay, so we're going to find the intersection of these two planes, these two bedding planes. (laughs) So first you get a thumbtack and a piece of tracing paper. And I said, I'm out. I Ah! took linear algebra.
0: (laughs) I love it so much. (laughs) See, I also took linear algebra, but have zero idea of how to use it IRL. (laughs) 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 I love matrices. They're super fun. (laughs) <clears throat> um, yeah hook me up with that brad and that tracing paper <laughs>
1: yeah it just uh anyway uh, <laughs>
0: i love it so much uh, it's so sort you, of like
1: more circles like they look pretty but you can do math right
0: me no well, but <laughs> well no i mean this is a general comment yes like, correct you're correct. You don't even have to do math anymore. All this stuff is on the computer anyway.
1: Yeah, but I end up writing the code that does it, so I do the math.
0: Okay, well, the rest <laughs> of us just consume that. And are like, "Ah, oh, cool.
1: So, yeah, I, I I want to go over this, Janet, because I think it's a very good visualization tool. I think using it as a calculator is absolutely <laughs> insane.
0: <laughs> ah. Ah, um i had to do this on my phd exam but yeah okay you're right
1: okay so (laughs) a stereo net is a way to take a 3d thing a plane a line something that is in three-dimensional space and represent it on 2d paper which should sound like a map projection and it is
0: right um If you took structural geology and are listening to this and your TA didn't have a clear hemisphere with which to tell you what a stereo net was, then they did it wrong.
1: Looking at you, my structural geology TAs.
0: (laughs) No, mine was real good.
1: (laughs) So the idea here is imagine you had a wireframe earth where you had the wires that were representing lines of latitude and lines of longitude, so circles going both directions.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly.
1: And you shine a flashlight through it. That grid that gets projected on the wall, that's a stereo net.
0: Right. And you can carry that around in your field notebook.
1: It's true, just like your iPhone. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Look,
0: John, back in my day... (laughs)
1: Uh, i'll keep getting those digs in as we go through here Man, right, you so will. this is
0: gonna be a contentious episode i can already feel it <laughs> yes
1: <laughs> and um, so w- when you're doing this you can slice the earth in different ways or slice this grid in different ways and look at it on the paper so you could shine the light like you were a geostationary satellite above the equator
0: <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry Yes, you're correct. That was the nerdiest thing that my TA definitely didn't say, but you're right. (laughs) (laughs) And
1: so that would give you like an eastern or western hemisphere projection. Mm -hmm. Uh, You could look from the top down, like polar. That would give you a polar projection. Right. So, oh, go ahead.
0: You can look from the bottom up.
1: Yeah, you can look from the bottom up.
0: Yeah, which...
1: You can look from the other side of the equator.
0: Exactly. (laughs) All different ways <laughs> But when you're doing those two different ways, you have to think of different ways to plot things Which is where the PMAG stuff comes in, but we'll get there
1: <laughs> Right, and so let's imagine that we're looking from a, a an equator view, a, a geostationary satellite view Okay Which is what we typically do in structural geology
0: mm-hmm.
1: So the north-south lines uh, that are like latitude lines are called great circles right so do you happen as well okay, so the east west lines, like longitude lines are called small circles right why we decided that one was great <laughs> I'm not totally sure
0: uh, <laughs> uh-huh yeah,
1: because the the equator small circle and the great circle the equator small circle is actually larger because of the flattening of the earth but okay anyway.
0: so oh doesn't <laughs> so one of them though a great circle will as it goes through there it slices it isn't there a difference between what you're slicing to a great circle is the largest circle that can be drawn on any given sphere so right. i guess that's why it's great um
1: yeah, so naming things is hard. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but the the lines that go up and down on the page, and north south, are great circles, and the lines that go east and west are the longitude or small circle lines. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, the outer circle that would be the terminator of the Earth if you were looking from the satellite, uh, we we call it the primitive. I
0: didn't know that. I actually learned that reading your your notes.
1: Yeah. So when you're, if you are, are to draw your own, which you can totally do you can draw your own stereo net it's kind of a fun activity Mm -hmm. Mm um you start by making the primitive it's where everything's going to go inside it's the first thing
0: yeah yeah that makes sense or if you're just really bad at drawing circles it may look primitive or that (laughs) (laughs) um did you know that great circles are also called orthodromes
1: Uh, no but i (laughs) that makes more sense than great circle
0: yeah let's call it that okay go on <laughs> all right uh,
1: and you, so you can look at if you slice the earth let's say through the the center you've got two halves two hemispheres now you can either look at the bottom one or the upper one the upper or the lower hemispheric projections
0: correct and it makes a difference <laughs>
1: It makes a difference. you can do that you can accomplish the same thing with both, but you have to know right. which one you're looking at. And of course, we don't all use the same one.
0: Yeah.: mm-hmm.
1: So crystallographers or crystallographers, they normally use the upper. Right. Uh, structure folks like to use the lower because it represents things that are below the surface, like what we we're measuring natively. Okay. Uh, whereas sense. in crystallography, I think we're looking at orientations of things coming out of the page more often than not. Okay. I, not a crystallographer.
0: No, um, neither am I. And I don't even know. I'm trying to think of like what stereo nets I've seen with relation to crystallography. Not very many. Or if I've seen them, I've gone, oh.
1: <laughs> well, so the ones that I have seen are LPOs. So oh. that is preferred orientations.
0: Okay. Yep. Yep. That would be And that, I, I guess, I sort
1: of makes sense, because you're looking at an orientation vector coming out at you.
0: Right. So okay.
1: I guess that makes sense, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's true. And then if you're a PMAG, you use both.
1: Uh, of course you do.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So why
1: do you use both?
0: Well, because magnetization is a vector right and it can be in any orientation and so you need to know because it has a declination and an inclination which can be positive or negative so you have to your little mark on the paper has to (laughs) has to tell you whether you're viewing it from upper or lower
1: okay so you could plot the same data on either one absolutely it's just more convenient and we
0: do yeah well we we plot the same data on on one and just let our marks either by color or some other way decide which way we're looking at them because, because in one rock you can have vectors that point in all directions.
1: Okay. Yeah. I guess that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it doesn't make sense, but it is what it is. Right. Uh,
1: (laughs) And the other thing that I don't see specified a lot is what, kind of projection it is because just like map projections, there are different lower hemisphere stereo net projections.
0: (laughs) I am not sure that I don't know if I've ever seen one like where it says this is what we're looking at. I mean if I'm gonna print one off, I'll look up specifically which one I want to print off. But I'm just trying to think if I've ever seen it like printed on one or anything. Or if any student would
1: know <laughs> uh no <laughs> is the answer to that one. The, uh, the differences are very subtle, mm-hmm. and generally, I think it is a convention in your field of which one is being used, right? And it is assumed that you know that.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting
1: because people don't use the proper name most of the time.
0: No, uh, no, they don't. And- we just get away with just just drawing the primitive and then putting data inside it so you don't know the difference
1: <laughs> well i mean when your data is made up anyway that's right <laughs>
0: <laughs> paleo magic <clears throat> okay
1: <laughs> you, you could switch it to an entirely different projection and it still looks the same so oh
0: poor
1: guys. <laughs> <sighs> it's so true <laughs> no it's not quite that bad but the the way that I've seen some people try to explain this that don't have the the clear blow up ball that you're talking about. I <laughs> guess is like take a bowl, a real bowl shaped, you know, hemisphere shaped bowl, and like hang a protractor in it and say, as I change the angle and the, the strike of this protractor, I'm changing the projection of it on this, you know, piece of cellophane stretched across the top of the bowl kind of right. thing.
0: Right exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. and
1: I'm not really I guess it would depend on the shape of the bowl, what projection that was, but that's <laughs> that's going a little far <laughs> uh.
0: it is, and just like you said, because you can math, it probably doesn't really matter that much,
1: <laughs> yeah, now this is these are a lot more effective than me just looking at a scatter plot of like strikes and dips,
0: oh, yeah, and it's. I remember when I first started in the oil industry and how it blew my mind to, like, take a contour of a structure map and then do, like, a first derivative of that and then do a second derivative of that and the stuff that, like, pops out when you do it. And it's, like, I feel like this about stereo (laughs) nets as well (laughs) because it's, like, you can just keep doing something to it. You've got all these scattered strikes and dips and then, you know, you see sort of the... In, in PMAG, we do it, too. You know, we plot, plot planes and then the poles of the planes. And it just, it's a good visualization for people that need that visual of what your data truly means.
1: Right. But. And so going going back to the, the projection thing for a second, then, of what your data means, mm-hmm. it depends on what you're looking for in your data as to what projection you should use. So if you're looking to do some statistics about things like how many strike and dips that you took on this big folded structure mm-hmm. were, you know, what was the standard deviation of those or how many were close to this point? That needs to be done on an equal area oh, yeah. right. plot. Correct. Which is like a Lambert projection. Right. Versus, if you're a crystallographer and you're wanting to know the distribution of c-axis angles, you need to use an equal-angle projection in which angles are preserved. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And that is actually—do you have you heard the name for these before? This I particular projection,
0: yeah. do the Lambert and the Wolf ones? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Wolfnet, yeah.
1: uh, which is named for a Russian crystallographer.
0: I didn't know that.
1: Yeah. And so on that one, the angle between vectors or planes or poles is preserved.
0: Okay. Okay. And And, I I think we usually use Lambert. I don't know if I've used or looked at, you know, wolf nets very much.
1: I've only used Lambert with the exception of looking at somebody else's LPO diagram.
0: Yep. Okay. (laughs) There you go.
1: So... You can do lots of cool things with these, but before you have to, or before you can do the cool things, you have to plot your data on them. Yeah. Which is where the the tack and the tracing paper comes in.
0: (laughs) This is so great. And it's just not ever going to be done ever again, I don't think. Um, I recently, as I was cleaning up stuff in my office, I found mine, which was half of a manila file folder. (laughs) with a Lambert, you know, stereo net taped on and then (laughs) tracing paper with a brad through it. But you have to put tape right around where you stick the brad through or else it'll just tear your tracing paper if you're going to do a lot of stuff on it. So, yeah, that was my calculator.
1: (laughs) Or you can use MPL stereo net.
0: (laughs) Not then you couldn't. (laughs) <laughs>
1: <laughs> so i i remember having to do it and thought okay this is kind of cool but i am not gaining any insight into structural geology from doing this crazy tracing paper routine <laughs> i'm getting insight to structural geology from looking at the end result
0: uh you know i could see where I don't know. I go back and forth every year at field camp about this, about making people do this exercise or not.
1: I mean, if you really, if you understand fundamentally what's happening, that you're taking a pole and you're rotating this vector around it and to project it, then it's valuable. But if you understand that, you're not going to do it with tracing paper.
0: Correct. That is correct. Exactly right. (laughs) So. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, so what... uh, uh, I mean, it's nice. It's not nice. I like doing this in a place where you're taking a ton of strike and dips, which should be everywhere, students. (laughs) But if you're taking a ton of strike and dips in sort of the same orientation, I like to have students, you know, plot those. And then you can get sort of the average of them. And it makes... It makes a good visual statement of, oh man, especially in, sed- well, obviously in sedimentary rocks, but especially in like sedimentary rocks where you can get some, lots of crossbeds and stuff like that. It can be hard to figure out bedding and to actually see how sloppy you are in taking strike and dips versus someone else. I like that.
1: Well, and to be able to say like, okay, so I use my field notebook to put on the rock and take my strike and dip on. And I didn't consider the fact that my field notebook was in my back pocket and I sat down and it was all warpy.
0: Right. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I, maybe students don't see that, but I see it because I grade them all. So I'm like, man, this is, you know, the spread is impressive. Um, But to me over the years using staring nuts, like that's what I gathered. Like it's made me a more careful data collector.
1: right and maybe that'd be a fun exercise to do actually is to have everybody send you their strike and dips digitally Mm -hmm. and then you can plot like the standard deviation of anonymized students
0: so i didn't even remember this obviously it got inception into my brain um but my professor my intro to field methods professor did that we had to bring him our strike and dips on a text file on a floppy disk. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I mean, a three and a half floppy. I'm not that old. (laughs) (laughs) And he did that exact thing and like showed us the spread of our values and stuff. It was um, pretty interesting, but he didn't trust us to use the computer. We just had to give him our data. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. So there is value, whether that's pedagogically or I don't know, There is value in the visualization of a stereo net. But you can do that, you know, using, like, field move, too.
1: Yeah. No, I I completely agree that you should plot your data on a stereo net to look at it. But when it comes to things like finding what is the apparent dip of a bed, there are so many better ways to do it. (laughs) Uh.
0: Uh, Yeah, that's probably true.
1: So, okay, let's imagine... That you go into the field and you take a strike and a dip, which defines a plane in 3D space. Correct. So you want to plot that plane on a stereonet. Mm-hmm. Yes. So you you stick your tape on the tracing paper and you stick it through the brad on your manila folder. <laughs> and if you're me, then you say, I'm going to go learn Python.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and me, I sharpen my pencil.
1: <laughs> uh, so y- you then go around the outside, go around the outer side of the primitive, mm-hmm. which is just like a compass, reads zero to 360. Exactly. Uh, for some reason, this is the only place where people are adamant that we use three digits to specify I- azimuth.
0: I am adamant about it constantly, but...
1: I, I agree, <laughs> but for some reason... In a lot of places, you can say striking at 35 degrees and nobody cares, but here you have to say striking at 035.
0: I care so much, and you'll get (laughs) counted wrong in my class. (laughs) But go ahead.
1: (laughs) So let's say you're striking at 035. So you make a little tick mark on the outside at 035, and you write your 35 there.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: You then rotate the tracing paper. So that, that mark is now lined up with the north mark on the primitive or straight at the top of the page. Correct. And then you count the great circles to find where your dip is. So if it's dipping perfectly horizontally, that's the same plane that cut the circle. So it plots on the primitive. If it's dipping vertically, it plots in the center. And if it's dipping somewhere in between, it plots somewhere left or right on the equator.
0: And that's what you have to count out.
1: That's what you have to count out. Generally, every 10 degrees is a thick line and every 2 degrees is a light line. Right. Uh, So then you trace that great circle from north to south pole at the appropriate Mm -hmm.
0: dip. Mm -hmm. And this is where you better know which direction you're dipping.
1: It's true. Uh, Which way do you count from the equator? To me, it's easiest just to think about it rotated back the other way. Okay, yeah, this side.
0: Uh, Correct, yeah. Uh,
1: Now, you rotate the tracing paper back so that north lines up with north. Mm -hmm. And there you go. Now you have this oblique great circle plotted that represents the plane cutting down into the page because we're looking at a lower hemisphere projection here. Right. That represents that strike and dip reading.
0: Correct. Great. And so in my example you're going to have a whole bunch of those and they're going to sort of converge and you can figure out the average. You know, visually, which is incorrect.
1: <laughs> so you can do that. Um, if you have a lot of planes to plot. I like plotting the poles.
0: Right. yes that's I was I was trying to fish you this direction.
1: <laughs> and yeah so, so plotting a pole, uh, the pole is just the normal vector to the plane.
0: Mm-hmm. So as my professor would do it is he sticks a pencil in between his fingers. and so you can see that your hand dipping is the plane that is the strike and dip and then this pencil that's sticking straight out between my two fingers. Right now, as I'm speaking, is the pole to the plane.
1: Yeah, and so when you have your paper rotated, if you want to plot the pole, rotate your paper back so that your mark is back at north. Mm-hmm. Go to your dip uh, where that crosses the equator count and nine. count okay. 90 additional degrees and put a dot. Yep.
0: There you and then
1: go. rotate your paper back.
0: Right. So now you've got a point, which is the pole to the plane.
1: And it's a lot easier to draw contours and come up with averages of the points right? on a really cluttered plot, to me.
0: No, and, and it totally is. You were, yes. And we do this all the time.
1: But it's also sort of the, in my mind, the same debate about, do you report strike and dip or do you report dip and dip direction? Mm-hmm. Like, n- neither is better than the other, really. But we're going to have a, a religious war over it anyway.
0: We sure are. <laughs> oh i mean if you yes (laughs) (laughs) there's no way at the undergraduate level you can hold the concept of (laughs) strike and dip and dip dip in your mind together it's impossible
1: (laughs) right so i chose dip dip direction
0: of course you did
1: Unlike everybody else. Yes, because no
0: one does that except for the guy (laughs) that taught you structural geology. (laughs) Um, Yes. (laughs) That is, I mean, it is sort of a North American versus the world sort of thing.
1: Yes, it's true. Yeah, Uh,
0: at least versus Europe.
1: (laughs) To which somebody would say, well, nobody's taking dip-dip direction on the moon. (laughs) But... I don't know. It, again, they both describe the exact same plane. It's just which system you prefer.
0: Correct. But you better know that when you're going into, you know, reading this plot.
1: <laughs> yes. And I don't like systems where if I'm holding my pencil in one hand and accidentally use the wrong hand, I can have all my data backwards. <laughs> <But>. <laughs>
0: um, yeah. And because of our old janky PMAG software, and to be really careful which direction we inputted our strike and dip directions. I don't think we have that problem anymore, right?
1: Yeah, no, we fixed that. Yeah. It actually <laughs> says what it's asking for now instead of saying, well, it says dip, but you really want to interhade.
0: Right, correct. Yeah. So, um, yeah.
1: So, so these are some of the... That's the basic plotting of plane. But you can do things like find the intersection of planes... Uh, so what, and okay, so this, this gets weird. (laughs) (laughs) What is the orientation of the linear feature created by two planes intersecting? Because they intersect on a line. And so that's what we're fundamentally plotting, right? Right. Um, and this is a thing that I think as an undergraduate, a lot of people have trouble with is there are planes and there are lines, in 3D space, and they are different. Correct. Yeah. Uh,
0: this is like axial surfaces and axial traces. and Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, Just like, like a, uh, the axis of a fold has a direction and a plunge, correct. but it's not a plane.
0: No. It's a line.
1: Exactly. Right. Um, <laughs> okay. So what we can do, intersection of planes, uh, angles between those lines. So let's say you had two plunging folds that intersected That's uh cool. <laughs> well i mean let's say
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay we're gonna throw i understand we're just talking about the stereo net. we're throwing everything we're talking about out. stereo
1: net. you yeah, could find the angle between those lines projected back up to like a flat surface cut through it correct um You could find something like you've got a line describing fault motion and a line describing a bedding feature. and You could find the angle between those. Mm -hmm. Is that a better example?
0: (laughs) Yes. Yeah, that happens all the time.
1: Uh, Angles between planes. Mm -hmm. Uh, True dip, which is so you've got some (laughs) sort of feature and then it's been tilted all around, Mm -hmm. uh, like folded. So you can unfold that. Uh a parent dip, which I want to come back to.
0: <laughs> you probably have a whole show on a parent dip.
1: And uh rotation about a strike. Okay. Which is important for things like you do of Yes. <laughs> I, I've I have a bed that's striking and dipping in some way, and I drilled into it with a drill and my core was striking and dipping in some way. How do I rotate my data that I take in core coordinates back to bed coordinates and then back to real life coordinates?
0: Which I hope you know how to do since you wrote my software.
1: (laughs) I can tell you one thing. My software does not involve tracing paper.
0: (laughs) That's why it's inferior.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I remember trying to do this when I took the PMag class there at OU (laughs) and we were supposed to do it with tracing paper. And I remember getting very frustrated and saying, can't I just do the math?
0: (laughs) You're the one of very few people who got frustrated for that reason. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone else is frustrated because they didn't put that little piece of tape on their brad and their crap was ripping. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I love it. Yes. So a parent dip. Mm -hmm. A
1: parent dip is one of my favorite structural geology concepts. (laughs) Even though it's really pretty simple.
0: It is really simple. It's just, it's, oh, it's the epitome of needing to understand objects in 3D. Yes. (laughs) And, I mean, do you think that it's easier for people to, in your words, grok a parent dip now because of the proliferation of, like, YouTube videos and all this other jazz?
1: I think so. Uh, I I mean, if there had been too. the YouTube videos that exist now on things like this, when I took structure, I know I would have done better.
0: Correct. And I think lots of people, well, I don't know. I don't know if people are doing better. This seems like a very long-term study that should, uh, should be, <laughs> should take place. Cause I remember when I was doing this and computers were just coming into, you know, their own in terms of all of us having accessibility to this you just had to imagine it like we'd have like 3d blocks to try to figure this out but that was it but now you've got all this great stuff like you were talking about before we even started like visible geology um where people can do this themselves in 3d and rotate stuff and i don't know if that helps you imagine it more or makes you lazy i'm not sure
1: yeah and really looking back what i should have done when i took structure was made some different Play-Doh cake layers and a knife.
0: <laughs> Look at you. I mean, that's essentially tracing paper.
1: <laughs> 3D yeah. tracing paper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, uh, Tastes so, taste better, though. Okay. Apparently. Yeah, if you've got
1: <laughs> dipping beds, like, let's make it simple. Yes. You've got three beds that were all flat lying, and they were... Tilted up by thirty degrees. Fabulous. Now, if you take that cake and you cut it exactly perpendicular to the the uh, to the axis about which they rotated around, which would be the strike,
0: mm-hmm.
1: then you see a thirty degree dip.
0: Yes. Is exactly if what you is.
1: swing all the way around 90 degrees and now you cut it, mm-hmm. what dip do you see?
0: I'm trying to get my nomogram out before you do this to me. <laughs> <laughs> so this is tangent of... <laughs> so your true dip is 30 and you cut it at zero. What are you doing? Zero?
1: You cut it at <laughs> 90
0: Okay, your true dip is 30, and you cut it at 90. Uh-oh. Let me see where your apparent dip falls. It's somewhere. Well, no, that is 30. Hold on. I'm not using my nomogram right.
1: <laughs> okay, well, go go rotate by 90 no matter what. So if you're doing 90 and it says 30, then rotate by 30. Uh, or r- rotate to zero. Uh,
0: oh, oh, hold on. I closed my nomogram. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the way you can figure this out is by math, which is much easier, or this apparent dip nomogram that I have in front of me, which a true dip and then zero. And the apparent dip is what? At zero? It's like right. seven?
1: <laughs> I mean, it's going to be Something below tiny... 10. <laughs>
0: it, it's
1: it's going to look like nothing, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. So it'll be something below 10. Um it's- and, yeah, go ahead.
1: And it varies in between there. Correct. So, realistically, if you're making a cross-section that's perpendicular to all of your structure...
0: <laughs> turn it around. <laughs>
1: turn it You're making the wrong cross-section.
0: Correct. Uh, <laughs> oh, gosh, that's so right. <laughs> but
1: generally, you know, okay, if you had an ideal case where you had these beautiful Horst and Graben structures and they were all perfectly linear... With each other, perfectly collinear. are perfectly parallel. Then no problem. But that never happens.
0: Correct.
1: And your cross section, unless you do a cross section that's not a straight line, will never be perpendicular to all the features. (laughs) So the apparent dip of the features in that cross section will change.
0: This is why on some geologic maps you might see cross section lines that take little jogs. Instead of just going straight across the page, because just like that, that I just, you know, muddled through um, trying to find the apparent dip of this 30 degree dipping bed. And when it gets below 10, it's really impossible to draw. And now you've got this weird sort of horizontal line on your on your cross section. That's not truly horizontal. It's just the way you're viewing it from cutting it at that angle. But you don't want that, so what you can do is you can make your cross-section line, you know, move around to sort of give you the best, um, the best angles to cut these structures. But then, you know, you start to do that too much, and you're not really representing the true structure. So apparent dip is hard to get your mind around until you actually start to draw cross-sections.
1: Yes, and there are a lot of things... I don't know the best way to represent this. Maybe it's some sort of a, a plexiglass model, but so many of these concepts, if you can if you can one time see what someone's talking about when they say, Okay, I've got a a lineation. I, I have a, a slicken line on my fault and I need to rotate that back to coordinates when that bed that the fault's in was laying flat. Mm-hmm those as a sentence you understood what i said yes 10 years ago you wouldn't have i wouldn't have been saying that 10 years ago yeah it it's hard until you see it once and then you go ah okay i understand now and i can visualize this
0: right yes yeah that's exactly right and so it's so i think it's so frustrating as a student to not get this. And it's so hard as a teacher to be like, man, I had to see this 50 times. Yeah. To understand that, you know? Like, I knew you were coming at me with an apparent dip question. I was frantically searching for my nomogram paper. <laughs> <laughs> and I teach this, you know? So, yeah. Like, you really have to... and. This is one of those things, and I people get mad at me when I say this, but it's absolutely true. Like, the geologist that sees the most rocks wins. And all that means is you have to understand those kinds of relationships. And it's as simple as, just like you said, John, if someone were to, like, just sit down with their Play-Doh and start doing this. And that's truly what some structural geologists do for a job.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: It's called modeling clay, but... <laughs> They do sandbox models of these very intricate, I mean, usually fold and thrust belts because those are easy to make, um, using, you know, sand and clay and then start chopping them up to understand what those cross-sectional relationships look like.
1: Yeah. And I think that's valuable.
0: Oh, absolutely. And when you see it, it's super valuable. So we should have somebody on that does that.
1: Uh, Yeah. No, I... And I, bet, I completely agree.
0: I bet they plotted their stereo nets on a piece of tissue paper, too. <laughs> Maybe. So I
1: found it. you know, you mentioned visible geology once. Uh, I definitely go look at visible geology. Great interactive tools to delay. look at a 3D model of a structure, plot it on stereo nets, cut it in various ways. So they have an apparent dip calculator. Mm-hmm. And so here's where your nomogram. Know, in my mind, I was thinking, well, the, dip, the apparent dip should be zero in the question I ask you. And it is. Yeah. Uh so well,
0: I was doing it with a nomogram on a piece of on a computer screen. <laughs> is there,
1: if the strike of the feature is zero, striking north south, and the dip is forty five, mm-hmm. if your cross section is at a bearing of ninety, then you see forty five. correct. If it's at zero, if it's a long strike, then it's you see zero. zero. If it's at
0: 45
1: <laughs> the apparent dips 35 yeah because mm-hmm. it's nonlinear it's right. a, it's one of those tricky things in fact it's a it's a an arc tangent it, well okay if you don't do it with linear algebra it, it's it's an arc tangent of the product of a tangent and a sign
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> so it's really nonlinear
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to calculate though
1: yeah, no. Mm-hmm. It completely is. <laughs>
0: yeah. And that's a great true false question too. Always is your parent dip will never be or always be greater than true dip. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. It's tricky.
0: <laughs> Every time. <laughs> Every time. Uh yeah. So
1: So yeah, again, I mean go go play a visual geology some. Uh MPL stereo net, you know, thanks, Joe Kington, you saved so many people so many hours. <laughs>
0: Um, We, I really like, if you don't understand, I mean, it's impossible to understand it right away. I mean, you just said that. And I always, obviously, am resisting going into the, um, the digital realm and not using a compass. But lots of people do this. And actually, when we were interviewing structural geologists a couple of years ago for the structural geology job we had open, Um, more than a couple of them said, I haven't used a compass in a long time. Like, I carry it with me, yeah, but I just use my phone. Yeah. (laughs) Which I think doesn't do you a real good service at understanding what strike is, but man, when you have a digital stereo net and you move it around on different beds, it makes you understand stereo nets a lot better.
1: (laughs) Yes, I, I definitely agree with that and and rowan uh, the guy responsible for a lot of these things like visual geology Mm -hmm. uh he had a blog post called on teaching stereo nets and i I love the way that he thinks uh and he said in there this is a quote from it uh what is a stereo net but math disguised as pretty pictures (laughs) perhaps we should give students the choice between the pretty pictures and the linear algebra then the students will fall in love with stereo nets (laughs) Ah, well, that is a topic for another day.
0: This is some easy linear algebra, though. Come on now. Yeah. (laughs) It really is. And I say that many years away from both structural geology and linear algebra. (laughs) But
1: But really, coordinate rotations, not just for geology, but for flying airplanes, for flying spacecraft, for doing anything in the real world, any kind of control application... It's all this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Which I, yeah. That was my favorite math class. It was so much fun. Uh,
1: yes. I did not appreciate linear algebra when I took it.
0: Oh, man. I had a great... See? It's all about the professor, which is real oh, crappy. Yeah. <laughs> That's a real crappy thing to say, but it's absolutely true. <laughs> uh,
1: after, After needing to apply linear algebra... Okay. Now I see what's going on.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, I didn't know what was going on in it. I just thought, oh, I understand this, <laughs> which was a novelty for me in math. So anyway.
1: It's actually one of those things that given the time, which is in horribly short supply over the last six months or so, <laughs> uh, but but given the time, I would love to get a, a new linear algebra book that I've ne- never used before Ooh. and just like sit down and work through it.
0: Just for funsies.
1: Just for funsies, just to to try to get, pick up and fill in any gaps.
0: Yeah. Um, because
1: there are things that I know that I do, and I look at the problem. I say, this feels like a linear algebra-y <laughs> thing.
0: Uh, uh, uh. But I'm just going to keep roughing it how I'm doing it.
1: <laughs> I, mean, I I can do it with some, some formulas. It's sort of like doing trig-based physics. You know um, that's not all there is.
0: Uh luckily, I didn't do that. It was physics was taught during the band, so I couldn't take it.
1: <laughs> ah
0: it may have helped though. maybe I should have taken a trig based physics, but hmm. I
1: don't know. it always left me you know you get these mysterious formulas
0: <laughs> yes, <laughs>
1: yeah you know, one half a t squared where did this come from? <laughs>
0: like, wait a minute.
1: Why is there a one half and a square? And then one day somebody talks to you about differentiation, integration, and your world changes.
0: Yeah, Mm-hmm. that's absolutely true. I wish start it started earlier. I wish we oh, started no. calculus earlier.
1: Uh, there's a book called Calculus for Infants that I completely intend to buy when we have a child.
0: Oh man! Well, that's interesting. I'm definitely going to look at that then. <laughs> <laughs> but we digress. <laughs>
1: But we digress. Uh, So these stereo nets, to to sum it up, I I don't hate the idea of a stereo net. I think the idea of a stereo net is a relatively elegant solution to a complex problem. I don't think they're calculators.
0: Yeah. um, I did say earlier, like, I had to do this on my PhD qualifying exam because everything in paleomag is on a stereo net. I mean, we say it's on an equal area plot, but that's a Lambert stereonet. <laughs> yeah. Um, because everything we do is vectors. And then everything, how those vectors interact in every way can be shown on a stereonet. And then we do things like fold tests in PMAG is a big deal. So you have two limbs of a fold. And is the magnetization the same or different? unfortunately you can't just look at that you actually have to do some statistics right and so this is what you can plot calculate on a stereo net is (laughs) unfolding each limb progressively and seeing you know statistically where the best fit of the vectors is as you do that and that's a fold test
1: which in the math world will be known as an optimization so you take the derivative and you find the minimum
0: correct Right, which is, I mean, we do it digitally. Um, Right. But you can sit there and, yeah. If you
1: take two pieces of tracing paper and plot each limb on each one,
0: (laughs) you could do this in an analog fashion. (laughs) Oh, good times. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so it's like everything in PMAG is like that. Like I said, it's upper and lower hemispheres because we have positive and negative declination or inclinations. And so, yeah. My life is really stereo nets, actually.
1: And you didn't think this would be fun.
0: Oh, look at you tricking me into talking about PMAG and having fun.
1: <laughs> so, so next week, we're going to talk about radial basis and. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs>
0: I mean, I'm really out before this fun paper. I'm not going to lie.
1: Yeah, I'll say, I think, uh, you know, saying do the math is a perfect segue into this week's Fun Paper Friday.
0: Oh, yay.
1: <laughs> what get you excited about this, too? So this came from listener Daryl. Uh, it's pancake making and surface coating, optimal control of a gravity-driven liquid film by Bujo et al.
0: That is where the fun ends, people, <laughs> at the title.
1: <laughs> Ouch.
0: <laughs> Sorry, Daryl. I've enjoyed many things you've sent us, but this one was rough. Uh. So
1: the idea is if you're making a pancake or a crepe, as they are specifically referring to here.
0: They are, which I already take offense at the comparison of pancakes and crepes, but go on.
1: Well, I've only had one of these things before, so.
0: Uh, They're totally different things.
1: (laughs) Quick. The idea is you, you pour some batter on a hot pan and gravity spreads this thing out.
0: Right. Much uh, like... Richard
1: Alley uses pancakes to talk about the flow of ice sheets all the time.
0: So do I. That's <laughs> what I just was about to say, much like continental glaciation.
1: <laughs> but go ahead. <laughs> so what you want if you're making a crepe, or maybe if you're making a pancake, I don't know. Is a uniformly thin, hole free, perfectly circular thing.
0: And that's a crepe. (laughs) But go ahead.
1: Okay, I guess pancakes have holes, but that's...
0: Yeah, and they're usually... Well, see, now I'm questioning whether I'm just not very good and my surface isn't correct and maybe I need to start rotating it to get a uniformly thin pancake.
1: Maybe you should. Yeah, maybe I should. Because you were going to say they're thicker in the middle, right?
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to say.
1: Yep. (laughs) But
0: but then I remembered this figure and all these differential equations and thought, oh, okay.
1: (laughs) So the idea is if you if you just drop the batter in and let it sit, some of it is going to start solidifying. Right. And as it spreads, it's going to end up thicker in the center and thinner towards the edges because the center has more time to cook and grow a thicker solidified layer.
0: Right. So how can
1: you rotate a pan to avoid that?
0: Oh, grow a tail. (laughs) (laughs) And it's all about the... Speed and way you rotate it, right? And does is the outcome of this paper, like, automatic crepe makers?
1: So it, it seems like this is sort of a trivial problem. I or, mean... Not, not trivial, but not applicable. Yeah. But I, I, I'm going to argue with that because doing things like putting surface coatings on manufacturing processes like semiconductors oh
0: yeah this is this actually seems completely applicable to me and i think it's yeah it's a very sort of serious paper once you get past the the title really (laughs) because this makes perfect sense now right i don't care if my pancakes thicker in the middle but i probably cared if i'm making them on mass and that's costing me more money (laughs) you know what i mean right i mean when you're talking about pancakes Obviously, this is a big deal for coating other types of surfaces.
1: Yeah, or what about if you are making some sort of chocolate-covered candy?
0: Ooh, and you want it to look professional and not like I made it in my kitchen. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, and I'm sure that as the consumer, we're okay with a thicker chocolate coating in the center.
0: Yeah, but not if you're making some fancy little thing that you are selling not at you know a gas station but instead at a patisserie or something
1: well or if you're the if you're the company making a hundred thousand of these things a day and that extra half a gram of chocolate is going to cost you a million dollars a year
0: really- <laughs> <That's> Exactly right. <laughs> uh, or that <laughs> man but so yeah i think co- it's or- more
1: applicable than we gave it credit for initially
0: it- correct yes that is correct <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say it wasn't applicable. I said it was crappy to read. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: I I I skimmed over a lot of the differential equations and the model setup just mostly trying to see where they said things like we're throwing this term out. Right. Or we're going to keep this term. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, like so what I thought was really interesting is that at their speeds and whatever that they didn't do any Coriolis force or um, centrifugal force stuff, right?
1: The, the Coriolis force didn't surprise me.
0: Yeah, because I mean, it's the time is so small, right?
1: Well, we're we're in a pretty viscous flow I mean, and now we're not talking about the Coriolis force from the Earth's rotation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're talking about Coriolis forces internal to the system because you have a moving because you're moving it. inertial yeah. reference frame. Yeah,
0: but it's the it moves small or it doesn't move fast enough.
1: It doesn't move fast enough. And the, I think I the meant, big thing time. is the time scale is too short.
0: Well, yeah, that's what I said time scale. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, well, I mean, the time scale of the velocity of the pan movement might be plenty to generate important Coriolis effects over two days of cooking.
0: But you're cooking it, yeah, right away. Yeah. So it's not going to. Thin films, thin films. Yeah.
1: So, so yeah, they neglected that. The, the centrifugal force was a little surprising.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But related, because that's still about reference frame. Correct. Uh, and yeah, there's lots of math in here.
0: La, oh, so much math, man! That Lagrangian right there with the, oh, good lord.
1: <laughs> and they, they use COMSOL to do this, which is sort of uh you plug in your physics and it handles the terrible numerical methods required.
0: Uh, I was going to ask if you had messed around with that.
1: I went to a workshop on it once and it does some pretty powerful stuff. I just get a little nervous when you didn't directly write the equations it's using. So you're like, yeah, I set this parameter and this parameter and this parameter. And if I misclicked this checkbox, I probably would never know. I would just have wrong results.
0: Right. Yeah. That's yeah. Cause it says, you know, we're using this coefficient form PDE module and it cast the pde in that standardized form yeah i wondered about that as well but anyway i didn't want it that hard because i didn't want to read all the pdes
1: (laughs) right i mean it's pretty cool software but it's also pretty expensive
0: yeah well obviously Um, i assumed that
1: (laughs) yeah so what i really liked is in figure five well first of all these things are clearly plotted with python so mm. go them
0: Mm, okay what do you think Uh, of this color scheme though
1: in like in which figures?
0: Uh, like figure six and seven. Ah,
1: uh, okay. We'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, it, in figure oh, five. You, oh, are you
0: talking about? Oh, you're talking about the color scheme on the graph. Oh, okay.
1: Well, so this is the old um standard color cycle for Matplotlib before Matplotlib three.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah.
1: Anyway, the um th- this is a graph of a time series, of you moving the pan about its two rotational axes you could plot this mm-hmm. you could plot your pan as a plane on a stereo net and plot a track of the pole over time using Look this graph
0: at that which is i mean we do that with p mag too but okay go ahead <laughs> yeah so
1: You've got uh, two axes. You're rotating, if you're holding the pan, imagine rotating your wrist left to right, mm-hmm. is one mm-hmm. axis. Yep. The other is raising and lowering your arm. Uh, not just lifting and lowering the pan, but tilting it right. away from you or towards you.
0: Mm-hmm. Which you do, like when you're making an omelet. Yeah.
1: Right. And so, <laughs> or <a> crepe. <laughs> the, the magnitude of these is about the same. Mm-hmm. So, like 10, 15, 20 degrees, somewhere in there. Uh, but you want one to be approximately twice the period of the other. Yeah. So go side to side twice as fast as you go forward and backward. Mm-hmm. At least for this method. So this is a Monte Carlo method they used to find the solution. It was pretty okay. Um, I think this would be difficult to do.
0: Physically. Yeah. Physically. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I had my Uh, daughter's little toy pan actually while I was reading this. (laughs) was, yeah, trying to physically do it as well.
1: (laughs) I mean, the period is about 10 seconds for the the short period one, so it'd be doable, but your arm would get tired pretty fast. Sure would. Uh, Then again, I don't know how long a crepe takes to cook. If it's so thin, I can't imagine it takes very long.
0: No, it doesn't.
1: Uh, so the the next, the, the figures that have a contours, or filled contours, rather, of the film thickness. Mm-hmm. Yes, I have somewhat of an issue here.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's not jet, sort of.
1: It's not jet. Uh, I believe it's the color map called Seismic. Oh, okay. Which is like the red-blue color map, but it's not quite as perceptually uniform. It's not terrible. No. But red, blue would be better. But okay. The problem that I have, well, okay, I can't decide how I feel about this firmly. <laughs> it's called a diverging color map. Uh, so the, there is a central value, and the lightness, if you will, we call it L star in mm-hmm. perceptual terms, is supposed to vary linearly down each side of the center. Right. And so these kind of things are best used for telling things like divergence from a mean. Right. Or you can assign some physical significance, like the center is freezing. Yeah. So how far above or below freezing that in itself, if we said given the volume of batter we pour into the pan, it should be, this thickness if it were evenly distributed Mm -hmm. and setting that to the central value so you see where it's thinner and thicker that's perfectly valid Yeah. Mm -hmm. and that's the way it's being used here but it's formulated in terms of absolute thickness not not how it varied from the ideal
0: right yes
1: so that's the problem I have yep it's a knit Mm -hmm. correct uh (laughs) But they show a time series for seven time steps of how the thickness would vary. So you tilt the pan forward and all the batter runs to the front and then you tilt it one way and it starts running towards that side and then you tilt it back towards you and then you tilt it back the other way. and Eventually you get a relatively even distribution of that film.
0: I love it. I'm going to cut this out and just put that figure above the the stove and see what happens <laughs> right (laughs) nothing will happen everybody be like what are you doing (laughs) shannon
1: so it doesn't say that they actually tried this i agree that what we should do is build a pan tilting robot
0: yes to
1: execute these patterns
0: man i was really hoping the conclusions would have that in there or the discussion but it didn't
1: (laughs) so yeah that's that's our next mission
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, the actual carrying this out.
1: And so they tried several different solution methods. The one that comes closest to the one that people are actually going to do instinctively is that you, like, tilt the pan and slosh everything to the front and then go side to side as you tilt back towards you to kind of distribute it around. Like, you Mm -hmm. slosh it around.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've never thought of moving my pancake batter pan around. Eggs, yes. This, no. It's very interesting.
1: Yeah, see, I don't... The only time I can think of ever having done anything like this is when I was an undergraduate (laughs) in the apartment I lived in. The stove was so far from level. The (laughs) only way you could cook anything (laughs) was to hold the pan at an angle.
0: Oh, my gosh. That's great. (laughs) oh uh, you'll be happy to know i think they've redone those apartments
1: they have yes yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, oh that's hilarious <laughs> well you could have had the exact way to coat your pan had this come out 10 years ago
1: yeah Or right let's see when when was this pl- yeah so um yeah this is
0: 2019 so
1: yeah so 10 11 12 years ago mm-hmm. somewhere in there uh, we could, you know, this is, uh, everybody's doing those 10-year challenges with their face right now. We could have, uh, pancakes <laughs> 10 years ago and today.
0: Hey, I've gotten way better at making bacon, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, bacon is something that, uh, I've always been pretty good at making.
0: Oh, well, look at you, you overachiever.
1: So I make a lot of bacon.
0: <laughs>
1: oh, man. So.
0: And on that note.
1: On that note, uh. <laughs> I thought this was really, it was a very good technical study of this. It was hard for a non-specialist to read because of the volume of math in it. But the takeaways I thought were really pretty straightforward.
0: Yes. Yeah, I agree. And like you said, I I like the figures quite a bit, actually. I thought they were good for not being, normally being a figure connoisseur. I was like, oh, yeah, I see what I need to do here
1: absolutely yeah. now i do think it would have been really cool to somehow do like a um, a yeah. third angle projection mm, mm-hmm. of what the topology of these looked like
0: oh okay yeah well when we do our robot experiments
1: you can make a pancake cross-section
0: yeah we'll do it
1: <laughs> to- we we'll to worry about the apparent dip of the pan and uh <laughs> get me out of here <laughs> <laughs> well, if you experiment with uh, thin films in your own kitchen and have tried this and come up with what you believe to be the optimal thin distribution method for them, uh, we would love to see those experiments. Shannon, how can they send those in?
0: Uh, please send us those. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Um, you can find us on Twitter, so tweet us your crepes, at Don't Panic Geo. I am at Shannon Doolin. John is at Geo underscore Lehman. And we are on the Slack chat room, the software underground, on the Don't Panic channel. As always, thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping us going. If we get some more Patreon supporters, maybe we'll build a crepe-making robot. <laughs> um, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Geo.